Welcome to another deep dive episode of the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. This is where we will dig deeper into the content from Sunday's sermon, consider even more ways of thinking about the Bible and how to live it, and encourage one another to follow Jesus more closely together. I'm your host, Will Barlow. Let's dive in. Welcome back to another deep dive. This time, we're going to be digging deeper into the sermon from last week called The Dividing Line, which was about crossing the Red or the Reed Sea. And so in this episode, we'll be uh, taking some talking points from the sermon and digging a little deeper into each of them. And then we'll spend the majority of the time at the end talking about baptism and various views on baptism, why I changed my perspective on water baptism in recent years. So to begin, I want to talk about water as the dividing line. We, we talked about how water was the dividing line in the ancient Near East. Bodies of water were generally uncrossable without boats because bridges were not common. And there is some poetic strength to this that we did not really get to on Sunday. And that is the water motif and especially the division of the waters or, or chaotic waters. Uh, it's something that's found in Genesis 1. It's something that's found in the flood narratives also in Genesis. So, you know, again, the point here is that water was considered something that was, uh, that divided people, it was considered chaotic and something that God needed to master and control at times. And that's what we, we see. There's a lot of callbacks to Genesis 1 creation uh, in the crossing of the sea. And uh, all that stuff's really interesting to think about. And if you want to know more about it, the Bible Project has a great episode on it in their Exodus series. Uh, we also briefly talked about the number of Israelites who left Egypt. Um, I talked about how Colin Humphreys uh, has a smaller number of people. Uh, Dr. Carmen Imes also has a smaller number of people, uh, probably closer to 20,000 than the usual 2 to 3 million estimate that's made. Um, using the 600,000 men, not including women and children, translation. Well, Dr. Carmen Imes discusses this more in her Exodus class in the, for the Bible Project, uh, but there is a lot of evidence for the smaller number. I, I just sort of hand-waved at it on Sunday, but I wanted to give a little bit more information about this. Uh, and again, if you want more information, you can go listen to Carmen Imes' class. Dr. Imes does an excellent job with this. Uh, or you can also pick up the Miracles of Exodus. Colin Humphreys does a great job with this as well. Uh, but here's what Carmen Imes, Dr. Imes says. Um, she talks about how archaeology doesn't really support the, the larger number, uh, either in Egypt or in Canaan at that time. She talks about how um, Egyptologists believe that there were like, I think it was like, three to five million people in all of Egypt around the time of the Exodus. And so if, if the Israelites were like two to three million people, then you wouldn't, you wouldn't have anybody left. Um, and it, it seems hard to believe that a, a group of two million people strong, 600,000 men strong, uh, would be able to be subjugated by a smaller number of people like native peoples. It just doesn't, it just doesn't seem to make sense uh, logistically. Um, there's also the question of population growth. 
Um, you have, depending on the number of years that you count for the period of time that they're in uh, Egypt, you either have like, I think the maximum number is like 400 years, but when you cross-reference a whole bunch of stuff, it becomes a lot less than 400 years. Most people consider it to be closer to like between 100 and 200 years. And so in that period of time, how is it possible that 70 people, essentially, that came down from the promised land to Egypt in the time of Joseph, how did that become 600,000 men plus women and children in just a couple hundred years? You would need pretty fantastic population growth to make that happen. Um, other logistical problems include the size of the camp and the length of time needed to cross the Sea of Reeds. Uh, we talked about this a little bit on Sunday, but but just just the caravan required for 20,000 people would be um, like miles across and miles deep. And so to cross the Sea of Reeds, it would have taken even a relatively minimal amount of water crossing, like say a couple hundred yards of crossing water, which is about as short as you could imagine that crossing taking. Um, with 20,000 people plus livestock and supplies and all of that, it still would have taken multiple hours, two to three hours. If you have two or three million people, you're talking about days. It would take days to cross the sea. So, you know, there's another another point. Another point that Dr. Imes doesn't make, but that other people have made, is that in Deuteronomy, God says that he doesn't, he hasn't called the people of Israel because they are more numerous or more important than other tribes in the world. And if they were 2 million strong at this time, they likely would have been one of the largest tribes or peoples in the world. And so that would have not been a factual statement. I believe that uh, that statement of God happens in Deuteronomy chapter 7, if I remember correctly. So anyway, so here are some of the options that Dr. Imes gives. She, she says one possibility is that the archaeologists and the Egyptologists are wrong, that, you know, we can't find evidence for a large number of people camping in the wilderness, uh, either in the Sinai Peninsula or in Arabia, um, that would be dated to this period of time. But maybe the archaeologists are wrong. Maybe they, maybe the way that they um, look at the evidence, maybe the evidence disappears faster than they think. Maybe it really could have been a larger group of people uh, than what we can find in the in the records. Um, uh, other options, the numbers are rhetorical or symbolic. It's 600,000 is not really meant to be 600,000. It's like a rhetorical device or symbolic. There's some symbolic aspects to the numbers. Um, another possibility is that the numbers were multiplied by 10 for rhetorical reasons. Um, every single number uh, has a zero at the end of it. And, you know, there's no, uh, there's nothing ever in the ones place. So some scholars suggest that the numbers were multiplied by 10. So that would give you 60,000 men plus women and children. That'd give you like a 200,000 kind of group instead of um, the, the amount uh, that we've been talking about, the, the 2 million or 3 million. Another possibility that people present is the numbers represent the population during a later period. Uh, Terence Freitheim and his book, Exodus Interpretation, says it that way, uh, that maybe the numbers represent the population of Israel during the time of like David's kingship, uh, when the population was quite a bit bigger. Um, and this is a way perhaps of affirming that later Israelites were participants in the Exodus event. 
Now this would also presume a later writing possibly or a later revision at least of the book of Exodus. Um, and that may make some of us uncomfortable. Uh, the final one is that the phrase is mistranslated and should be read as 600 clans or 600 military units plus families. Uh, that's the approach um, that Colin Humphreys takes. That's the approach that Dr. Uh, Imes takes. And that's the approach that I feel best about. Um, if, we, if we take that word and uh, instead of translate it thousands, but translate it like military units, then you end up with that 20,000 number that I talked about on Sunday. She points out that Judges 6.5 and Joshua 22.14 are two examples of this word uh, being used to mean something other than thousand. So I'll read both of those for us. Judges 6.15 says, And he said to them, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan, and that's the same word for thousand, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Clearly, this is talking about a clan or a family or a military unit. It's not talking about a thousand people. Joshua twenty two fourteen says, And with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And again, this would fit as clan or as military unit, uh, but clearly cannot be thousand. So I think, again, there's, there's really a lot of evidence that points to both internally and externally uh, to the number of people in the Exodus being closer to 20,000 to 50,000 maybe total people instead of two to three million total people. I also wanted to spend a little bit more time on the topic of the name Red Sea. There's a little bit more details that Dr. Arms gives in her class I, I didn't have time to give on Sunday. Uh, we talked about how um, the Hebrew language you would always translate that Reed Sea. It would, you would never translate that Red Sea. It's always Reed Sea. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, has something that means Red Sea and cannot be Reed Sea. So, and then we talked about Tim Mackey citing Bernard Bato, thinking that it has a double meaning. It could mean end or cutoff place. We talked about the route of the Exodus that Humphreys has, where they cross at the very tip of the Gulf of Aqaba, that it has all three of those things, that it has reeds, uh, that the Gulf of Aqaba is part of the Red Sea, and also that it ended up being an end or a cutoff place. Uh, one of the things that I didn't mention on Sunday is, is that there is actually red coral in the Gulf of Aqaba at the place where uh, Colin Humphreys thinks that it was a potential place for the crossing of the Reed Sea. So anyway, it has, has even has red coral, so in low tide, it looks red. <laughs> it looks red. And so anyway, the point is, Colin Humphreys is... Uh, perspective fits all three of those. Uh, there is a fourth possibility. Some scholars think that it became Red Sea because each of the cardinal directions, north, south, east, and west, are associated with a color. It's like the Black Sea would be north, the Red Sea could be south, and so they think that since the sea crossing happened at a location south of where they started, that the Red Sea would just be the southern sea. So that's a, another possibility. Now, in terms of the route, I mentioned on Sunday that our biblical clues are the name of the Reed or Red Sea. That doesn't help us too much. Um, but I wanted to also mention that Humphreys, the, another reason that Humphreys likes the Gulf of Aqaba for the Reed or Red Sea is because of other biblical times that it mentions Yom Suf. And Yom Suf or Reed Sea 
It's not a term that necessarily would have to mean the same body of water and every single time it's used. So it's a little hard uh, to do this kind of analysis and decide, oh, okay, every single time Yom Suf gets used, it means the same body of water. So we have to find a body of water that fits all the usages. It is possible that there are other reed seas. It seems like a generic term and not necessarily a super specific term. But Colm Humphreys does point out that it, the Gulf of Aqaba does fit a lot of the later references to other Yom Sufs, other reed seas. Uh, for example, I'm going to read 1 Kings 9.26. 1 Kings 9.26, King Solomon built a fleet of ships at Ezion-Geber, which is near Eloth, on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. So it, it references the reed sea Yom Suf and Solomon building a fleet of ships, and it's on the shore of the Yom Suf in the land of Edom. So Edom, if you look at the map, Edom is just north of Midian. And, you know, we also point out on Sunday that Moses fled 40 years prior to Midian, and he met with God on the mountain while he was tending his father-in-law's flocks. His father-in-law lived in Midian on the other side of the Gulf of Aqaba. Other details that we have, we have the detail from Paul and Galatians that I mentioned on Sunday that Sinai is in Arabia, not in the Sinai Peninsula. We also know, historically speaking, that Egypt frequently controlled the Sinai Peninsula. So it's possible that the Israelites uh, would not have felt safe in the Sinai Desert and would have felt the need to get over the Sinai Desert and across the Sinai Desert. So all this adds up to the Gulf of Aqaba crossing that we talked about on Sunday. Uh, and again, if you want more information, there's tons and tons of more detail in Humphreys, Colin Humphreys' book, uh, The Miracles of Exodus. And it's one of my favorite books I've ever read. I really highly, highly uh, recommend it to people. Uh, one thing that I didn't mention, I know this is surprising. This is surprising given my background in physics. Uh, it was a physics major in college, really enjoy physics. Uh, but one thing that I did not mention on about the crossing on Sunday is the physics behind the crossing. Now, um, we, we see a lot of miracles in the Bible, and not many of the miracles in the Bible get an explanation right there in the text. Usually we have to uh, think about possible ways that God could have done things. And uh, for those of you that are unfamiliar with my view on miracles, my view on miracles is that, uh, generally speaking, I believe that God works within the laws of nature uh, to perform miracles. That a miracle, in other words, is not something that is impossible from a physics or chemistry uh, perspective or scientific perspective, but rather something that is very improbable and that um, is very improbable and that it's more about the timing, about like who, who it happens to, uh, when it happens, and that sort of a thing. And so, um, in other words, the miracle behind the, the Red Sea crossing or the Reed Sea crossing is not uh, that the water actually parted, because in the moment I'm going to explain a little bit about the physics behind it. It's not that the water parted, because the, the water can part. There, there, there are examples throughout history of different bodies of water parting like this, okay? The miracle was that it happened right when the Israelites needed it, right when they started moving forward. So um, it's really interesting that the Bible tells us how this happened. The Bible tells us specifically that God sent a strong east wind all night, and that that is what contributed to this miracle. What's, what's fascinating What's fascinating is that if I had to guess what would have caused this, and I didn't know in the text, if, I didn't, if the text didn't tell us how this miracle took place, I would have told you the easiest way for this miracle to happen 
would have been wind because wind can cause both water to move uh, like uh, to put water on both sides like it describes in the Bible. And then there's a couple different mechanisms that wind can do that. And wind also explains how the water became, or the, the land, excuse me, became dry, dry enough for them to walk across it. The, the, sea, the seashore became dry enough for them to walk over it. Now, there are a couple ways to visualize this. Uh, one is for a wind to come uh, like sort of perpendicular to the crossing and for the people to walk um, with the wind, as it were, like with the wind at their backs. Um, and so that's one way that this could happen. Uh, another way that this could happen is a mechanism called wind set down. Wind set down is where the wind actually comes perpendicular or across the crossing and pushes the water uh, to one side. And so then how do you get water on both sides? Well, what Colin Humphreys has us imagine is like a higher point holding back some of the water and the wind pushing down the rest of the water. So you'd have, you'd sort of have like a, like a little mound in the middle that the Israelites were, were walking on, the mound, the top of this mound sort of. And on the left, you would have had uh, possibly this lower area of water that wasn't being held up by wind, but just sort of getting pushed down by wind. And then on the right-hand side, on the right-hand side as they, or the south side, you could think of it, um, the, the wind was holding up uh, this other amount of water. So that's another possibility. Uh, but anyway, th the point I'm trying to make here is, is that wind is the mechanism, absolutely, uh, that I would use to describe this miracle if we didn't have it in the text. The text thankfully tells us that it was wind. And it's really, really cool stuff. So uh, look more into wind set down if you, if you want to visualize this a little bit better. Um, or again, pick up Colin Humphrey's excellent book. Another thing that I want to talk about here, I, I didn't have much time to talk about the Song of Moses on Sunday. We briefly mentioned it at the end of Sunday's sermon. I wanted to share a few more details about the Song of Moses from Dr. Carmen Imes' class on Exodus. Uh, she focuses a lot on the literary design of the Song of Moses. And literary design is when you notice specifically how a storyteller tells the story with specific details. And, and oftentimes in the Bible, what we notice is that some details in one story uh, reflect or mirror other details from a different but similar story that happened either earlier or later in the history of the people of, of Israel, the people of God. And so she's noticing quite a few different details that are, that are sort of uh, touchstones and things that we can think about that are really cool. And what she comments is, she comments on how the Song of the Sea or the Song of Moses is about justice. It's about bringing oppressors to justice. And she identifies four themes, uh, victory, renown, creation, and rest. So with victory, she notices how Yahweh strikes down the gods of Egypt. Um, she, she notices how uh, he defeats the army of the Egyptians. Uh, with renown, she's talking about the end of the song where it talks about uh, how Yahweh's deliverance established his reputation among the nations, for example, in verses 14 through 16. Uh, the nations are viewed as trembling. Uh, with creation, um, this is sort of uh, like the moment when Yahweh's deliverance um, creates Israel as a new nation. The new nation sort of rises from the waters 
And um, it's a pretty uh, stern rebuke and a stern, uh, pretty, pretty amazing defeat of Egypt. Uh, the deeps cover the Egyptian army. That's a callback. That's verse 5, and that's a callback to Genesis 1-2, the Tehom, the deep. And when the Israelites walk through on dry ground, and that word echoes Genesis 1, uh, verses 9 and 10. And then finally, rest. Um, Yahweh's deliverance would culminate in proximity to his presence in the land. He will plant them on the mountain of their inheritance. That's verse 17. Dr. Himes also talks about Miriam's role in the Song of the Sea. Uh, Miriam picks up the refrain at the end and uh, sings to the women. And she talks a little bit about Miriam's role in all this. Why bring up Miriam? Why call her a prophetess? Dr. Imes goes into a lot more detail about this, and I really recommend her class. So if you want more details on that, you could go uh, listen to the class. But a couple of comments on what she said. Um, she said that Miriam also witnesses Moses' rescue from death in the River of Reeds earlier. That's sort of a literary analytical piece here. Um, from, from Exodus 2, verse 4. Miriam's the one who witnesses uh, Moses' rescue from death. Um, and even though she was just a child at that point, um, she brought women together to participate in the story of redemption. And, and in this story of redemption in Exodus 2, they're redeeming and they're saving just a child, Moses. And that gets echoed here in the crossing of the sea. Um, and then in this time as a grown woman, she brings together the women to celebrate the redemption of the whole nation in Exodus 15. So there's this bringing together of women in Exodus 2, and then there's this bringing together women in Exodus 15. That's a literary, what's called a literary device. And the other thing that this, this does by showing Miriam's participation in Exodus 2 and the participation in Exodus 15 is it sort of reminds us of all the times that women have been impactful in the story. We, we talked about this in our first sermon of the series about how impactful women were um, early on in the life of Moses. And this is just pointing out that women are still a big deal to God and to the people of God, even um, in the Red Sea crossing. And then the final thing is, is that the song echoes the theme of the plague narratives, that you may know that I am Yahweh. Um, she's sort of announcing its fulfillment. She's singing to Yahweh. Um, and then the final sort of literary aspect of this is that as the previous Pharaoh had mandated that the Israelites had to hurl their sons into the river, now Yahweh is hurling Pharaoh's warriors into the sea. So you have, again, and we talked about that a little bit, about the judgment aspect of this and how this is mirroring the, the way that Pharaoh used to treat uh, the Israelite uh, male children. I also wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about the echo of the Song of Moses in Revelation chapter 15. Uh, this happens in Revelation chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, which I'll read right now. And they sing the Song of Moses, the servant of God, and the Song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy." All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. First, I want you to notice that this song is called the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. And the Lamb, the Lamb especially in the book of Revelation, but really the Lamb throughout the Bible, the Lamb is Jesus. So it's now the Song of Moses and the Song of Jesus. 
This brief song, as it's recorded in Revelation 15, it's way shorter than the version in Exodus 15. Uh, but it, it, it is interesting. It is a song of praise to the Father, who is Yahweh, just like the song of Moses was in the original context, to Yahweh, to the Father. And notice that some of the same themes are here in the song in Revelation. You've got the theme of justice. You've got the theme of righteousness. Those are the two themes primarily that, that, that translate. So anyway, it's, it's really interesting to see that the song of Moses is still remembered and that it gets sort of jumbled in and added to the song of the Lamb. They sort of get combined together. Um, and so it's really sort of a, a cool little echo here of the song of Moses. And again, it shows how relevant, how relevant this song still is for us today that we can think about how important it is to praise Yahweh for uh, the things that Dr. Imes mentioned, for victory, for renown, for creation, and for rest, that those still, things are still relevant to us today. Now, before we close and we start talking about uh, baptism, before we close the sort of beginning part here and we transition to the subject of baptism, I wanted to add just one last brief comment on the literary design of the Red Sea Crossing. And we talked about Miriam's piece of this earlier, but I want to talk about Moses' piece now. Moses, his name, one of the, the meanings of his name is he who draws out. And remember, as a child, he was placed in the banks of the reeds, by the reeds. And it very specifically mentions that in Exodus chapter 2, that he was placed by the reeds. And he gets delivered from a body of water that had reeds. And now in the Reed Sea Crossing, he is leading his people through the reeds and delivering them through the reeds. And so again, you have these features of how the what what details the, the storyteller is giving us. It's it's designed to make our minds think about these linkings between these two stories and uh, remind us of how Moses, in some sense, has traced the path of the Exodus in his own personal life. Um, which is a really interesting thing to think about. Before he, he sort of goes through the Exodus personally, then he comes back to Egypt and he leads his people through the Exodus and delivers them from the bondage of slavery. Now for the moment that all of you have been waiting for, let's do a deep dive on baptism. Some of you may know that I've changed my views on baptism in the last four years or so. And I want to begin by reiterating a few things I said on Sunday. First, again, I want to be clear that I do not believe that anything metaphysical happens when you are dunked in the water, necessarily. You know, God can do whatever he wants to do. But generally speaking, people can be baptized and not receive the Spirit. Receiving the Spirit is the metaphysical change that allows us to follow Jesus in a more complete way. Second, I want to point out that the ancient mindset understood this metaphor better than we do. The symbolic nature of baptism fits better in the ancient Near East where they understood that water was a dividing line. And as I pointed out on Sunday, baptism would have been an act of radical commitment. So there's a lot of richness there to think about with the original ancient Near East context of baptism. So like I said a second ago, I started to change my views on baptism about four years ago, I grew up in a church context that taught that water baptism was no longer really necessary. Um, this type of teaching is pretty common in churches that have a dispensationalist viewpoint um, and also 
churches that have more charismatic, a more charismatic viewpoint, although uh, it's not, you know, it's not necessarily in, in every church in both of those contexts. And so let me take some time here. I want to unpack a little bit the view that I grew up with, and then I want to explain why I changed my mind. So first, let's start with dispensationalism. Dispensationalism. So dispensationalism is the idea that there are distinct time periods in the Bible where the way that God relates to his people changes. So there are these different like boxes of time, you could imagine, that God works within specific frameworks, and then those things change from administration or, or dispensation to dispensation. Now, in the particular version I grew up in, there were seven administrations. Uh, administration is the same word as dispensation. It mean, means the same thing. The old school term was dispensation, but uh, the church I grew up in had a more modern word that they used called administrations. Anyway, there were seven of these things. Paradise, patriarchal, law, Christ, grace, appearing, and final paradise. So the original paradise administration was uh, you have Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, then the patriarchal administration begins at the fall and the removal of Adam and Eve from the garden. And it continues until the giving of the law. Uh, then the law starts with the giving of the law all the way till Jesus' ministry. Uh, the Christ administration was for when Jesus was ministering on earth. The grace administration starts at Pentecost and it continues until Jesus comes back. Uh, the church I grew up in had a pre-trib, pre-tribulation rapture view. So the sixth administration begins with Jesus coming back and the church ends up in heaven with Jesus while all this crazy stuff is happening on the earth. Um, and then the seventh administration begins with the final judgment and the seventh administration never ends. So in the church I grew up in, the way that they understood their dispensationalist framework, water baptism was something legitimate and godly in the law and Christ administrations, but it was no longer necessary in the grace administration. And one thing that they would do is they would justify this by quoting a couple verses in Acts chapter 1. I'm going to read... Acts 1, verses 4 and 5. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. This is Jesus talking to the apostles. But to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. Verse 5. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So in their view, baptism in water was replaced with baptism in the Spirit. So I was taught, for example, as a child to read all the occurrences of baptism in the epistles, everything that was in the time frame after the day of Pentecost, uh, to refer to spirit baptism and not to water baptism. We're going to find out shortly why I think that that view is now impossible to hold from a biblical perspective. But there's another aspect to this that I think that would be helpful, and that's the charismatic piece that I mentioned before. And for those that are less familiar with this term, um, charismatic people are uh, Pentecostals. They believe in the power of the Spirit. So I grew up in a context that believes strongly in the power of God and in the importance of the Spirit. And I'm thankful for that upbringing. I'm thankful that I grew up with a focus on the Spirit. But one side effect of this is that sometimes physical things especially rituals, were devalued. Things like water baptism were viewed as unnecessary because only the spiritual things are necessary. 
And I want to caution against that line of thinking. And I think there's a really interesting irony here as well. Much of this pushback would have been against Catholic traditions and unnecessary rituals. But there's also this really interesting Gnostic kind of dislike for physical things. Um, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about the Gnostics, but the ancient Gnostics were heavily influenced by Greek thought. And the Gnostics devalued physical embodiment, viewing the spiritual plane as higher, more valuable place to be. And this type of thinking led the Catholic Church to eventually demonize sex to the point that Mary had to be a perpetual virgin. In order to have Christ, her body had to be pure. And not only would this mean not having sex before Jesus was born, this would mean like never, ever having sex. Mary never, you know, had sex ever, which I think is strange from an ancient Near East viewpoint. Now, all these views that the Catholic Church would hold, like Mary being a perpetual virgin and this devaluing of sex and that sort of thing, all this stuff would have been made fun of by the, my old church. In fact, was routinely made fun of as a child. I remember this happening. And yet that same Gnostic influence teaching has, uh, was relevant with water baptism. They devalued this physical ritual because they figured that the spiritual baptism was way more important. And like I said, in some sense, that's sort of true because you do, um, you do need the metaphysical change of the spirit. But the larger biblical question is still valid. Did they still water baptize people? And if so, why did they water baptize people? And so my question is, why would we not want to participate in a physical ritual that God set up? Uh, for example, the Jews celebrated Passover year after year. Christ instituted communion, which is a physical ritual full of symbolism and meaning. So if God wanted people to go through a physical ritual of water baptism upon conversion, why shouldn't we do that too? This would seem to be something physical, uh, even if you want to call it a ritual, uh, it seems like something that could have a lot of symbolism and a lot of meaning and value for people. So as we look to the scripture to answer this question, I want to point out a few things that we will notice. The first thing that we're going to notice is the book of Acts is going to define a phrase for us. The phrase is, quote, baptism in the name of Jesus, end quote. The Bible is going to define uh, that for us in Acts chapter 10. And so the first principle I'm going to mention here is that we have to let the Bible define its own terms when we can. The second thing is we should notice when things are separated by and and but and also the situation where there are no words that separate clauses. We'll get to that. That's a little heady grammatical point there, but we'll get to that here in a minute. The third thing is, whatever we find should make coherent sense in the Bible. And for bonus points, we should be able to find information on it in early church resources. So we're going to begin our journey here in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, at the end of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, this is what he says in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, this preaching that Peter had done, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I again want to point out that I was taught that this is talking about spirit baptism. However, I want to point out that the grammar does not lend that conclusion, does not lead that direction. Now, if you wanted to further define something, you could use a participle clause. So consider the following two sentences. Billy ensured his team's victory 
kicking the field goal through the uprights. So in this sentence, we have Billy ensuring the team's victory, then a comma, and then this uh, participle clause here, kicking the field goal through the uprights. So we could ask ourselves the question in between here, Billy ensured his team's victory, how? Kicking the field goal through the uprights. You could also get rid of the comma and insert the word by there. Billy ensured his team's victory by kicking the field goal through the uprights. Now consider this other sentence. Billy made the field goal and he dunked his coach in Gatorade. Now in the first sentence, I used a participle clause that ties the two things together. Billy kicking the field goal was the means by which he ensured the team's victory. In the second sentence, I used a conjunction, which is the word and. These are two separate actions, even if they are related in some way. Now, Billy made the field goal and he dunked his coach in Gatorade. Those are two separate actions. Now, we can understand that because the field goal won the game and because he won the game, that's why they dunked the coach in Gatorade. Okay, these things are related. These ideas are related, but they're not referring to the same activity, the same time frame, the same everything. There's a relationship between them, but it's not an overlapping kind of relationship. Now notice in Acts 2.38, Peter does not say, repent and be baptized, comma, receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. Instead, he says, repent and be baptized, dot, 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 and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Just like we understand that repentance and baptism are different, so is baptism and receiving the Spirit. Since baptism and receiving the Spirit are separate, the baptism here must be a form of water baptism. Now, I can already hear the pushback that some of you might have. Yeah, that's how English works. Well, what about Greek? Does Greek work the same way? Well, there is something called a participle of means in Greek. As Daniel Wallace explains in the Basics of New Testament Syntax on page 275, the participle of means asks the question, how? And he gives the example of Matthew 27, verse 4, and I'm just going to read the A part. This is what verse 4a says, Matthew 27, verse 4, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. That's the verse, or at least the part of the verse I want to read. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. It's interesting, the word by is a common Greek preposition. It happens all the time, occurs all the time. But here there is no preposition in the Greek. But it's inferred by the use of, guess what, a participle. So using it in our sentence above, Billy ensured his team's victory by kicking the field goal through the uprights, like I mentioned before. We can, we can do that in English too. So yes, Greek does work the same way, it turns out. Um, and there are examples of it working that way. So surely, if Luke, via the Spirit of God, wanted to explain baptism as spirit baptism, he would have used a different Greek grammatical structure. He would have recorded Peter as saying, repent and be baptized in the Holy Spirit, or perhaps repent and be baptized, comma, receiving the Spirit. Then we could ask the same question, be baptized, how? Oh, by receiving the Spirit. But that's not what Peter said, and that's not what Luke recorded. Again, I can hear maybe some of you are concerned that I'm skipping ahead too far, I'm pushing too far on this grammar piece, and that's okay. Let's go to Acts chapter 10, because this is where the phrase, 
baptized in the name of Jesus gets defined in the Bible. Acts chapter 10, verse 44. Context here is Peter has gone, the same person who's speaking in Acts 2, has gone to visit a man called Cornelius. The Spirit has led him to a Gentile by the name of Cornelius. And he is preaching the gospel to this household of Gentiles. And something remarkable happens. We'll pick it up in verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Now here's our critical verse here, verse 48. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So here, these Gentiles in Cornelius' household had already received the Spirit. They had already been baptized in the Spirit, if we want to use that language of baptism there. They had already been baptized in the Spirit. After this had obviously already taken place, Peter commands them to be water baptized. He says, can we withhold water from baptizing these people? Verse 47. Verse 48 says, and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So he uses the phrase, baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and he defines it here to mean, it can only mean water baptism. It's very clear that it's water baptism, both by the order in which this thing happens and the, the, the mention of water in verse 47. So the Bible has defined what this phrase means. Whenever we see the phrase, baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, we can definitively say that it means water baptism. And certainly that would make sense in the same book, the book of Acts. So let's go back to Acts 2. What does Peter say? And Peter said to them, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you. How? In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So it's very clear here that this is water baptism, and the spiritual baptism was separate. We get that with the use of the conjunction and, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The baptism was one thing. The receiving of the Holy Spirit was a separate thing. Now, I was taught that while there are water baptisms in Acts, Acts was a transitional period of time. They just didn't understand that water was to be done away with. And so they kept water baptizing people, even though God did not intend for them to do it. I have a couple comments about that teaching. Uh, First, we never hear that argument from Scripture. Scripture does often tell us about bad things. For example, like Abraham marrying Hagar and having Ishmael. That's one example. And sometimes when the Bible tells us about these bad things, it does not give us explicit judgment that those things are wrong. Uh, But rather, it allows us to infer that from the context. So the question that we would have to ask ourselves in this case is, is there any time when water baptism is said to be wrong in Scripture. Well, again, from my upbringing, the people that taught me about uh, the the fact that water baptism is unnecessary, they would have pointed to Acts 11. So we're in the context of Acts chapter 10. Peter has just worked with Cornelius in his household. He goes back and he's explaining himself to some other leaders in the church. He's rehearsing how he came to Cornelius' house and what happened there. So I'm going to pick it up in Acts chapter 11, verse 13. 
And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Now this is Peter explaining his actions now in verse 15. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning, verse 16, and I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now notice that Peter never mentions that he commanded the people to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, which we've already seen is water baptism. So when we read verse 16, we have to read it in context with what, with what has happened and how Peter is telling the story. Now, again, I was taught that verse 16 is a repudiation of water baptism, but what we're going to find is that that's not at all what Peter's talking about. Let's read these four verses again. Acts chapter 11, verse 13. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. What verse 16 is a commentary on is not water baptism. Verse 16 is not meant to be a repudiation of water baptism. Verse 16 is a commentary about how the Gentiles have received the Spirit. In other words, when, when Peter quotes uh, Jesus' words that are recorded for us in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, the verses that we read earlier, what he's focusing on is what he had just said in the story. The way he had told the story is he's talking about how the Holy Spirit fell on them just as it had on them at the beginning. He's referring back to Pentecost. He's referring back to Pentecost. And then he quotes the word of his Lord, helping him prepare for Pentecost. How John said, uh, how, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So what Peter is doing is he's citing Acts 1-5 to highlight the importance of the fact that the Gentiles have received the Spirit. He, doesn't, he, ha, he never got far enough in the story to explain the water baptism piece, at least to this point. So now, if there's any doubt to this interpretation, we just have to keep reading in verse 17. So let's read that. Acts 11, verse 17. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they, that's the group of leaders that's listening to Peter, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So here it's incredibly clear that Peter is citing Acts 1-5 to highlight the importance of this receiving the Spirit. And that's what they keep talking about in verses 17-18. The story at that point never got to the point of, Jesus, of Peter commanding them to be water baptized. So, so this, this recollection of Peter in Acts 11 has nothing to do with the water baptism. It has everything to do with the Gentiles receiving the Spirit. That's the whole focus of the passage. I want to add here also that Paul also water baptized people. And I think we should go to the most difficult, this was the most difficult section for me as I was working through this topic, and that's in Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19, we're going to read the first six verses. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, 
did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Now again, I want to point out that I was taught that baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus was spirit baptism. But we've already seen that that cannot be the case. The Bible defines this phrase for us in the book of Acts chapter 10. And it's water baptism. It's defined as water baptism. Now I want you also to notice the string of events here. Paul asks them about their baptism. They say they were baptized in John's baptism. Paul says you have to be baptized in the name of Jesus. They do that. Then Paul lays his hands on them and they receive the Spirit. Interestingly enough, the grammatical construction here is with a participle. Had laid, when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. So had laid is a participle there. So even in this context here, we have an example of, of a, a way, a grammatical construction like we would have needed to tie these two things together, to tie spirit baptism in with what's happening here. But that's not what, what happens. It's, it's tied in with the laying of hands. The spirit baptism, if we want to call it that, is tied in with the laying on hands. Well, that happens after verse 5. Verse 5 is they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they received water baptism that was different than John's baptism. So you have three baptisms, possibly, if you want to call the spirit, receiving the spirit of baptism in this context, that's fine. But in that case, we have three baptisms being mentioned here in Acts chapter 19. You've got the water baptism of John. You've got the water baptism in the name of Jesus. And then you have the spirit baptism. And the order that it happens in is they receive John's baptism some period of time before this. Paul tells them that they should believe on the one who is greater than John, to believe on Jesus. When that happens, they receive water baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. And after that happens, Paul lays his hands on them and they receive the spirit baptism. They receive the Holy Spirit. So, I think this is probably the, the piece that, that finally had to click for me to make sense of Acts 19. I always thought that there were just two baptisms, that there was water baptism and spirit baptism. But what we find in the Bible is that there are two different types of water baptism. There's water baptism in the name of John. There was a baptism of repentance for forgiveness before Christ died, before atonement was made. There's a water baptism in the name of Jesus. And that water baptism is a, um, an act of dying like Christ did, like I talked about on Sunday, and being raised with Christ coming out of the water. That's an identification with, with Christ, which is different, completely different than, than John's baptism. And then you have the receiving of the Spirit or Spirit baptism. Now, I want to point out another passage that shows that the word baptize generally means water, and that's 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul is reflecting on his experience with the Corinthian church. We're going to read a couple verses here, starting with verse 14. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you are baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So 
I want to point out here that this pretty much has to be water baptism because, you know, you think about like what the preaching of the gospel does. The preaching of the gospel, when it's successfully received, the preaching of the gospel leads to people accepting Christ as Lord and leads to them receiving the spirit. Okay. So when he says Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, that cannot be spirit baptism because in his mind, preaching the gospel and people receiving the spirit should go hand in hand. Those should be completely similar things. Now, if he's talking about the ritual of water baptism and he's trying to say that, hey, like I didn't water baptize many of you. I just water baptized a couple people, but it doesn't really matter who water baptized you. The point is that you're following Jesus. That makes so much more sense of this passage than if we understand this to be spirit baptism. Now, I want to also point out that Paul's not trying to minimize baptism in water in the name of Jesus. That's the first thing that he did with these people in Acts 19, the people in Ephesus. But it's merely to say that his primary mission is not baptism, water baptism in the name of Jesus. His primary mission was to preach the gospel. So I'm, I'm going to say it again just to be sure that I'm being really clear here. Generally, when we see the word baptism, the noun form, or the, or the verb baptize, or the verb forms of baptize in the New Testament, it generally means water baptism. When we see spirit baptism, usually it says spirit baptism. I'm going to say that the times when it talks about spirit baptism are when it uses the phrase literally spirit baptism. So if you see the word baptize or baptism and it does not have that modifier spirit next to it, I'm going to say generally that's water baptism. Generally that's water baptism. Now, I'm going to return. Let's return now to Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So here's one of those references, one of those times when spirit baptism, that language of baptism is specifically used in relationship to receiving the Holy Spirit. So I want to point out that now we know that there are three baptisms. There's John's water baptism, there's Jesus's water baptism, and then there's the spirit baptism. There's another key that I want to point out in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, that's really interesting here, that I think it, it eliminates the need uh, to even dog John's baptism, which I do believe was time-bound and is not necessary anymore. But even though uh, John's baptism is not the water baptism that I believe in, that I believe is relevant for us today, I think there is something interesting that we can find here in Acts chapter 1. And this is a key that I missed until I started looking at this in more depth. There are two main words for the word but, the, the transitional word but in the Greek language. The two words are Allah and De. Allah is used when you want a strong transition. Um, you know, I, I don't want to eat pizza tonight, but I'd rather eat a salad. I know that's an awkward sentence, but it's a strong transition. You know, um, you like to do this, but I'd prefer we do that. You know, it's a strong transition. Day is used for a softer transition, and it's frequently translated and. Well, can you guess which Greek word is used in Acts 1.5? It's the word day. So the verse could be translated, John truly baptized with water, and you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. 
So this is not some grand statement by Jesus saying that all water baptism is outmoded. It's really a focused prophecy that the Spirit is coming soon. It's really more about the second part of that. You're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. You're going to be receiving the Holy Spirit. That's the importance of the verse there. It's not to, to downgrade or downplay the importance of John's baptism, even though I agree it's, there's no longer time for that. It's, there's another water baptism available to us today. But even then, it's not a strong transition here in that verse. How else can we explain why Peter chose to water baptize people 10 days after Jesus say this? Like, like if, if Jesus is trying to make this grandiose statement about how all water baptism is completely irrelevant, then why would Peter, and we've already seen Peter in Acts chapter 2, he baptizes people in the name of the Lord Jesus. That gets defined as water baptism in Acts chapter 10. So he heard this saying of Jesus literally 10 days before he water baptizes a bunch of people in the name, in the name of his Lord. Do we really want to say that he messed up one of the requirements that he gave the people listening to his sermon on Pentecost? A sermon that, by the way, fulfilled a prophecy of Jesus that the Spirit would guide the apostles when they needed to speak in front of people. I don't think so. I don't think we want to say that Peter messed up at Pentecost by water baptizing a bunch of people. I don't, I don't think we want to say that Philip messed up when he water baptized people. I don't think we want to say that Philip shouldn't have baptized the eunuch. I don't think we should say that Peter shouldn't have baptized Cornelius in his household. I don't think we should say that Paul shouldn't have baptized the people in Ephesus. All these baptisms, they're all clearly designed to be of God. Now, with that in mind, let's look at Matthew chapter 28. The closing of Matthew 28 has been called the Great Commission. Verse 19, Matthew 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is talking about water baptism. Jesus wanted his disciples to make disciples, to water baptize people, and to teach them to do what Jesus taught. So here in Matthew 28, we get the, the reason why Peter water baptized the people on the day of Pentecost is because he was doing what Jesus told him to do in Matthew 28. Which, by the way, if not the exact same time in the exact same conversation as what's recorded in Acts chapter 1, would have happened really darn close to what he said in Acts chapter 1. Same time frame, Jesus in his resurrected body. So, Peter is being obedient in Acts chapter 2. He is water baptizing people in the name of the Lord just the way the Lord commanded him to do. He's doing what Jesus told him to do. And we should do the same. We should be following Jesus. We should be doing the things that he uh, taught. That's what Matthew 28 tells us. I want to mention too here, Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, there are seven ones given. I want to read them here for us. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I want you to notice, like we've seen throughout this whole time, that the Spirit is already mentioned by the time we get to baptism. There is one body and one Spirit. It's already in the list. So if you want to say 
that the word baptism there is spirit baptism, you get the spirit twice in the same list. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Again, generally the word baptism in the New Testament, it means water baptism. Water baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. That's what was commanded by Jesus in Matthew 28. It was just what the apostles did consistently through the book of Acts with zero remorse, with zero uh, concern for the fact uh, that that's what they were doing. And both Peter does it and then Paul does it. Now, to add even another stone, here's a little church history at the end. Um, the, the Didache, I'm going to reference the Didache here for a minute. The Didache is an early church document. It's likely first century. Uh, this is a good window into the practices of the early church. And this is what the Didache says. You can Google Didache chapter 7, and you'll see this. this is one translation of it. You might get a slightly different verbiage, but anyway, it should be pretty much the same. Concerning baptism, and concerning baptism, baptized this way, having first said all these things, baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in living water. But if you have no living water, baptize into other water. And if you cannot do so in cold water, do so in warm. But if you have neither, pour out water three times upon the head into the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. But before the baptism, let the baptizer fast and let the, and the baptized and whoever else can. But you shall order the baptized to fast one or two days before. Now, again, the Didache is not scripture. It's not meant to be as authoritative in our lives and control our thinking and control our doctrine and practice as much as, say, Acts 2 or Matthew 28 or Acts 10 or Acts 19 or any of these other records of water baptism in the New Testament. But I just want to point out that the earliest church document that we have, the Didache, defines baptism as water baptism. It just flat out defines baptism as water baptism. Historically speaking, this is what the early church believed and taught. And I don't believe that this was a corruption in the early church. Now, before we close out, I just want to repeat what I said before. I don't want to bury the lead on this. Water baptism does not necessarily change you. It might. I mean, there are some people that when they get water baptized, that's the moment that they receive the Spirit. We see this in the Scripture. Um, or they, they get water baptized and, you know, the Spirit comes, like, in the same event. Okay? That happens. But water baptism does not necessarily change you. It certainly didn't change the people who were baptized by Peter um, and his, uh, the people that came with Peter when you're talking about Acts 10 with Cornelius and his household. They had already received the Spirit. They had already received that metaphysical change. Okay? So the decision to repent and follow Jesus, followed by the giving of the Spirit, that's what changes you. However, water baptism is a beautiful way to honor God and honor our Lord Jesus Christ, and to show the community that you are dedicated to following Jesus. It's a beautiful metaphor for, like I said, dying when Christ died and rising when Christ rose, identifying yourself with Jesus. On a personal note, after many years of not being baptized and having been baptized, um, I believe I received the Spirit at a young age and have lived a fairly faithful Christian life since the point of receiving the Spirit at a very young age. Um, like many people, had my ups and downs in my teenage and, and college years. But um, 
after a period of, of faithful Christian living, I did make the decision to be water baptized a few years back. Um, I had the honor to be baptized by my friends Jerry and Sean when I visited them in New York in May 2021. Um, nothing metaphysical changed for me when I got water baptized. I didn't uh, gain an extra gift of the Spirit or uh, another kind of, I don't know, I didn't have any emotional kind of experience or anything like that. Um, I remain as committed to following Jesus as I, as I always was, as I always have been. The reason why I decided to be baptized was personal. I'm happy to share it. For me, it was a way to go back in time and honor God and Jesus the way I would have as a child had I grown up in a church that believes like I do now. Um, I, I, as I've explained it to people, it, it, it's sort of like, I have an example here. It's sort of like um, someone who got married by eloping. You know, the, the, the two people, they go off and they elope, right? Well, are they married? Yeah, they're married. As long as they got all the legal stuff taken care of, they, they're married. They don't, you don't need uh, a big wedding. You don't need a big uh, to-do with a minister and with all your friends and family and all that stuff. Um, but imagine, imagine that this couple that eloped, if they go back 15 years later and they say, you know what, I understand why we eloped. And we're definitely married and we pay our taxes like we're married and everyone knows that we're married. We live, you know, we have kids. We've got this whole life. We're obviously legally married and, and practically every single aspect of being married is, is fulfilled. We have every single um, ability of a married person, every single right and privilege of a married person in the side of our society, in the side of the law. Everything, everything's taken care of. You're absolutely married. But if they go back 15 years later and say, you know, why don't we have a ceremony? Why don't we just celebrate with our family and friends like the way, you know, I understand why we eloped. And I don't, you know, I don't think that was a mistake. But, you know, let's go back. Let's go back in time and let's, let's celebrate this together. Are you telling me that that wouldn't be a meaningful thing? Absolutely, it would still be a meaningful thing. It would absolutely still be a meaningful thing. So if you made it this far through this deep dive, if you're still listening, and if you're someone who's listening and maybe you were, weren't water baptized, um, maybe it was because, uh, like me, you grew up in a church environment that taught against it or didn't make a big deal out of it. Um, or maybe, you know, as you grew up and you accepted Christ, you just never got around to it. You always felt like it would be weird or I don't know. There's probably tons of reasons why people don't get baptized. Anyway, um, maybe you just didn't get around to it. I don't know. I encourage you to think about it again. It's not like it's necessary for salvation. That's, that's what, the point I'm trying to make. I know lovely, vibrant, incredibly gifted um, people that the Lord has led through wonderful, you know, fantastic things that have never been water baptized. And I don't know if they ever will be. And that's okay. It's not, it's not necessary for salvation. If you don't get water baptized, it does not diminish your status in Christ. It's, I'm not trying to make this a thing of like haves and have-nots and only the haves get water baptized and the have-nots don't. That's not what I'm saying at all. It's not what I'm saying at all. But what I'm, what I'm suggesting is I'm just asking you to think about it again. Just reconsider it. Just, just try to wrap your mind around it and think about, you know, maybe this would be a time of transition for you. Like it was for me. 
a time of transition from one way of thinking about water baptism to a new way of thinking about water baptism. Or maybe you could find other symbolism in your life. Or maybe, maybe like the couple that eloped and then decided to have a, you know, a formal uh, to-do you know, 15 years later. Maybe, maybe that will spark for you. Maybe you'll get excited about that. Anyway, you know, I encourage you to think about it. Think about getting water baptized. Thinking of, think about uh, what that could mean for you um, just as a way to be obedient just as a way to, uh, to honor God and to honor the Lord Jesus. And, um, and so that's, that's sort of why I did it, and I encourage you to re- reconsider that if you haven't been baptized. As we close here, I just want to offer up to, for more information on the subject of baptism, I recommend a teaching series done by my friend Victor Glucken. I'm going to include a link to the video series in the show notes for this episode. And I will say, that this series is particularly helpful if you come from the same church background that I come from. If you come from a more general Christian context, some of what he says uh, might, might confuse you a little bit. So I especially encourage those who have the same church background that I do uh, to, to take a look at um, Victor's class on baptism uh, if you want more details and more information. All right, I think that's more than enough for this deep dive. Uh, thank you so much for listening. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for joining us on this deep dive. I want to close by thanking Dave Tench for his musical contributions and Paula Ely for her help with design and editing. We'll catch you next time. Let's continue to follow Jesus together.